Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And that's it. Yeah, you just hit a button these days, and now you're and live. Off it goes. Off, off it goes. goes. <laughs> this uh, this roller coaster has begun. There we and, go. Uh, I am excited to introduce everyone to my guest today. In fact, I've known him for years. I bumped into him a long time ago when uh, my company was working with his company and it was software, and we got to go to a conference. I don't even remember that conference. Was California or something? Yeah, San Diego. Was this San Diego? Man, yeah. that was a great time. Uh, I just remember a massive table of hors d'oeuvres and great weather, you know? Meanwhile, back home in New Hampshire, things are <laughs> But so I, I've known him for years, uh, but he is actually, uh, the things he's done since, I, <laughs> since we first met, so many things to talk about. Highly published keynote speaker, digital marketing leader, thought leader, uh, as well as in the world of the agile marketing leader, uh, one of the top 40 digital strategists in marketing on one of the lists there. He is a, a fractional CMO. He's a chief marketing officer, a fractional CMO um, at Origin Email. And uh, Ryan Phelan, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much, Casey. Glad to be here. Uh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, there's so many things to talk about, so many things to get into. So let's yeah. just kick it off here. Cool. I'm going to pass you this thing. It's heavy. Oh, okay, God. Oh, there we go. It. Thor's you hammer. You got the, I got, got it. it. All right, you got, got it. Got it. There we okay, go. good. That's Thor's hammer. And okay. you need to take that and smash for me some kind of myth, bogus strategy, misconception that just drives you crazy. Set the record straight once and for all. All right, cool. Uh, let's see. The biggest one I like. This is the, the, when I go in and present to B2B companies. The one thing I start with is to be a great B2B marketer, you gotta be a fantastic B2C marketer. Yes. And then I pause and everybody's face goes, oh no, you're wrong. We don't sell dresses, we sell SaaS. <laughs> but then I like to do it the opposite way. I go into B2C companies and I tell them, to be a good B2C marketer, you've gotta be a really good B2B marketer. Like, no, we don't sell SaaS, we sell dresses. And the myth is, is that they are two siloed environments that never shall pass. But that's absolutely not true. Interesting. Uh, B2B has perfected marketing automation uh, and recognizing intent and nursing somebody along a journey and recognizing intent and serving messages through email or social or, or ABM or whatever that is. Right? Sound familiar? That's what we're trying to do on the B2C side. And B2C has perfected UX, uh, has yeah, they perfected have. Uh, how people shop online, where they shop, how they find information, navigation, organization of information, product description, all that kind of stuff. Now that applies on the B2C side. Or B2B Giving them side. power and control over the sale. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that your first site that you went to on the internet when you discovered the internet wasn't, if you're a B2B marketer, it wasn't a B2B site. It was shopping. It was news. It was entertainment. It was right. Nickelodeon, for God's sakes. People are trained 
on the B2C side and they have those same expectations on the B2B side. Right. And so if you don't meet that expectation, you're seen as an outlier and you're seen as um, broken and not in touch with reality. You need to meet those buyer's expectations. Yes. If you don't, you're worst case even you look sketchy and you're just going to hold the, all the, the trust that is necessary to make a purchase b2c or b2b you're halting that because they don't trust you because you don't yep. smell like a duck or Everybody whatever else. the quote is yeah yep yeah huh. no that's exactly right how long does it take for you to explain that to people before they come around or do you have any naysayers that just flat out reject you as soon as you say that um the best example i i um I presented to a very large bank here in the States. Okay. Yeah. And everybody's in a suit. I'm in a suit, which if you know me, rarely happens. Impressive. Well, but, I think I, I see in a suit. Now you're probably in a cool blazer or something. I, I usually don the blazer and a polo. And yeah, jeans. yeah. That's about as dressed up as I get. You and were like legit suit tie. I was, yeah. I had... I was in the nines. It looked like I was going yeah. to an interview and I don't even wear that to an, I don't even wear a suit to an interview. No. Um, and I stood up in front of all these executives, senior vice presidents, EVPs, SVPs. And I said that, and the whole room just got all kinds of dysfunctional. And it took me a good 20 minutes to get everybody back in line and convince them that that was the way we were going to go because they all kept wanting to argue that they were a bank and that they didn't need to have that much of a relationship. It's about the money. I said, yeah, but you got my money. And so that's probably the longest that I've taken. Most audiences I get to are like, okay, you're right. Right. Because we kind of know, we kind of know, kind of know, but you just don't want to admit it. You right. don't want to admit that the B2B world can inform how you're doing B2C. Right. Or the, right. Or, or the other way around. But once um, you get that, it unlocks these ideas of what can you accomplish? It's funny that a bank was the one that was freaking out too, because yeah. I can't think of too many other things that are more blurry than a bank in terms of B2C and B2B. They, they actually sell the businesses as well as consumers. Like right. I couldn't think of anyone more appropriate. They, they purposely do both. Um, yeah. So why not? you know, give a little bit of that relationship to the consumer side, you know? It's the, con it's the competition between the groups, right? Because you have the consumer banking uh, and you have the business banking and they don't want to play well with each other. They don't want to have to say, hey, can I borrow some tactics from the B2B side or vice versa? And so there's a natural competition. That's tough. That, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that'd be the challenge the, the bank president has to then sort of figure out how to align those two. And make them act like each other. Yeah. Maybe they, like, uh, you know, they get handcuffed together and they get dropped off in the woods, like, you know, like 80 miles right. from civilization. Right. And, Paintball guns and all yeah, kinds of yeah. stuff. Right. One person what has was, a knife, one has a flashlight. And that's right. it. Didn't wonder a game like that when we were kids. Um, what right. was nice is though, Called everybody scouts. in the room. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, Everybody in the room was senior enough that once they got it, then it cascaded down to the rest of the groups and everybody was given permission to do that. It wasn't looked on cool. uh, upon as negative. And so the outcome was great. The getting there was the painful part, but it all paid off. It was fun. Right, right. I like that. I like that. So you're able to get them to see that B2B, you know, I need to introduce you to uh, Juliana um, Cassell. I was, or Casale actually is how you say her last name. Okay. It's so confusing, but she she's up in Toronto and she was 
ranting on the same thing. I, I need to get you guys you know, yes. together because you both feel strongly about the same thing, but not everyone says this. I don't know why not everyone says this. I mean, I don't even always say this because I, because I also see the differences between the two. And I think well, there's vast differences when you say that they can work together. You think, well, does that mean they're the exact same? And maybe, the, but there's yeah. differences, but there are also so many similarities. I think we can toss now, that how out. How I describe it is that there is a base strategy that each side has. And what you have to do is overlay your adaptation of what you're trying to accomplish. So marketing automation on the B2B side is more, uh, is, is very regimented. It's very um, timed. It's very verbose. It uses mm. all kinds of different stuff. But the theory of marketing automation and how B2B does it is the, is the strategy. I take that over to the B2C side and I overlay my consumer strategy, which says I need less taxed. I need it to be less involved. I need right. it to work in a shorter period of time. I have, a, you know, I have a window of opportunity that's a day, not 30, right? right? Um, and so you overlay your individual behavior, but you do it on the base strategy that the sector has. Yeah, and that's and that's and that's how you that's how you approach it. You don't just copy, but you have to adapt it. I copy and adapt it, but learn from learn from those things. And mm -hmm. and you know, I guess one of, one of her points too was like, either way, you got to get to know your buyer. So yes, you can't do any of this if you're sitting there and don't know who. Yeah, who each uh, each of your different cohorts is, right? Okay. We we and this is what I spend a lot of time working with clients on is that they think that. I need to know my buyer. Well, which buyer? Are you looking yeah. at the buyer that it's a that it is the instant buyer, the person that needs coupons all the time, the person that you know that there's. Uh, uh, I used to have a slide. There's like twelve separate buyer types for a typical e-commerce company, hmm. and you have to be able to know each of those in it to be order in in order to Do you power know their names? communications. Their names in alphabetical order. <laughs> uh, no, I know that the some examples are the discount buyer, the instant buyer, um, the um, full price buyer, the um, uh, occasional, the one time, the. That's all I got. That's impressive, by the way. That that's a, <laughs> that you get double points for each one. Um, I, I, I can see th this is like buyer persona work like you would do in the B2B yes. world and uh, different, different people buy in different ways. And, and some are occasional. I was waiting for you to say like one that I fit in, which is like the, the hesitant is still reeling from his last buyer's remorse. Doesn't want to. Right. You know, it is like looking for excuse not to. And <laughs> the therapy yeah. buyer. The, yeah. There, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm stuck in quarantine. What can I buy right now on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, totally. There was a study when I worked at, a at Axiom. They did a study. Okay. And they looked at fashion buyers. And it was an incredible study. I think it's still out there. It's, it's a few years old. But what they did is they broke up the fashion buyer into like six deciles, six cohorts, right? And what they found is that in the top two most popular deciles, those groups of people were first full price buyers that wanted that bought it because of the logo and the second most popular were women who wanted to see what it would look like on them 
So they go in the store and they would try it in the store. You didn't get anything on discount until you got to the third group. So when I talk to customers about your customer, right? I break it out and I say, in those first two, if you offer them a discount, you're actually not giving them anything they want. What they want to know right. is, what's the logo and how does it look on me? Yeah. And if you've offered a discount, you've just given up margin. Yeah. So yeah, and they don't, they didn't even want it, but there's no, they didn't want it, but you gave it to them. You give yeah. them margin all day. And they're not, they're not doing that price shopping. So that might actually cheapen oh. the logo in their opinion, because they want to be able right. to say, no, I got this thing and look how crazy expensive and awesome it is. Yeah. Interesting. They don't care. They really don't care about price. It always makes me wonder about whenever I see on a, a shopping checkout, whenever I see coupon code, a little square for that where you can enter it and I don't have one, I go looking for one, you know? Oh yeah. You know, it's those kind of things that, but, but to your point to highlight that for someone who doesn't need it, you're losing out on money. Right. It's just, it's, it's trying to put someone, you know, in the B2B world down a journey they don't want to go through. I was, I was chatting with Adele Ravella and she mentioned talking to John Deere, doing some buyer persona work for them. And this one piece of equipment, like, you know, eight geographies, six industries, um, all different use cases. They only had two buyer personas. There was like the experienced person who was like, I need to see a comparison chart. Don't you dare call me. I know what I'm doing. And then there was right. the opposite. He was like, I, I'm trying this for a new approach to this industry. I really am nervous about it. Can someone please call me? Right. right. And it's like, if you do the opposite for the wrong one, to your point with the, the fashion buyers, mm -hmm. you that's not, you're not serving them and you might actually get in the way of them doing what they want to do. Well, and what's funny on the B2B side, if you offer a discount from a brand equity standpoint, that can be a bad thing. Yeah. If you have a coupon code, if you're a SaaS person, if you have a coupon code on the checkout page, it's horrible because you're saying some people got this cheaper than what you did. Yes. Yes. And that can be hate bartering. Yeah, you can diminish the brand, you can diminish the product, you can lose the sale because people on the B2B side are putting their jobs on the line to get the product that is going to best serve their company. Well, yeah. you know, you have to think about all those things and that's where in the buyer personas, B2B has always been much richer and much more detailed in their buyer personas. That's what the B2C side can learn from is what does a true buyer persona look like? Everyone I've ever seen on the B2C or B2B side, amazing detail. The ones they see on the BDC side are 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 less than less than yeah. accurate. Right? Tip of the iceberg kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, they just don't have the depth. It makes total sense. It, I mean, how much better would we be if we learned and like just put down our ego or whatever it was that was preventing us from playing in the I, other playground? I wouldn't have a job. See, then then it wouldn't. I wouldn't need to stand up on stage. And, that's true, but I think even even if we got some people doing it, there's still people that oh, there is. get in there and beat them over the head with a, a baguette or something is. and be like, come along. The fracturing of the corporate ecosystem yeah. is, is, is the – and I've worked for companies that failed not because they didn't have a great product or brand or advertising dollars. Yeah, It's because – and I worked at a very large retailer a long time ago. And, and the fracture between the online business unit and the in-store people oh. was as huge as the distance between here and the UK. They didn't want to play on that side. They didn't want to play with each other. They didn't. And what that ends up doing is limiting innovation. Oh, yeah. And 
and and and it and it is and has destroyed a very good company merely because people didn't want to admit that the online group actually had value and that the in-store group actually had value. Yeah. It was a battle over dollars. Ugh, geez. And I, there's so many cool things you would get from just being a fly on the wall on either team just to kind of yes. borrow from. Yes. Big borrow steal. I remember just listening into a sales call one time on the B2B world, just listening in to this supposed lead that was being called and they didn't know what was going on. They weren't even like, who are you guys? Why are you calling me? I was like, right. wow, that is not a lead. That's not a qualified lead. It's not even a, lead. that's terrible. That's a name that we forced you to call. Let's fix yeah. this right now. That's uh, dialing so much, for dollars. Yeah. Yeah. So much power to that. But I guess marketing is easy, right? And everyone can do it. Yeah. That's the other myth. Gee, many Christmas. If I had a dollar, um, I, I, I am constantly amazed at the number of people, very smart people, that just think marketing is just so easy. Hmm. And they look at you and they go, you know, uh, uh, we'll get this a lot in our business is uh, somebody will ask, hey, how much to create all these emails and all this stuff? And we'll say, well, it's three to four weeks, right? If it's a really in-depth kind of a thing. And they're like, three to four weeks? You can get this done in a couple of days. Come on, this is easy. This is just email. I'm like, no, it's not just email. In marketing, people come in that have no experience in marketing will come in and will start fiddling with marketing and saying that things need to be this way and this way and this way. And it's like, marketing is a science. Marketing is an approach. Marketing is a mindset. It's yeah. not. It's not for the weak of heart, right? It's not. You know, I've I've worked in the fractional CMO stuff. I've worked with enough companies that they'll come in and they'll have this harebrained idea and I'll say no and they'll try and debate it. And it's like, listen, you can do it, but you're wasting your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's because you have to have this. I talk to a lot of companies about the global perspective and not global as in earth, global as in my industry. Um, and you have to instantly be able to measure what you're going to do against the reactions of your compet your competitors, the industry, the customer, yeah, and the prospect. And and that takes that takes a lot of learning and it's not something somebody that has no experience in marketing or light experience in marketing can come in and try and mimic. Yeah, why is that? Why do people think that? Why why do they like why is everyone kind of a closet marketer? Because I think everybody's got a good idea every once in a while. Yeah. And I do. I listen, to, I listen to a lot of ideas from a lot of people that are in technology or product or whatever. And there are some great ideas out there. But just one good idea doesn't mean that you're now a marketer. That's uh, true. It means you had a good idea. Right? I think, yeah, people like to brainstorm, some people. And mm -hmm. then it's like, here's this idea. But it doesn't mean we just automatically go with that idea. It's like, let's throw it into the marketing brainstorm right. pool and let's figure out if it right. should go. Yeah. Hey, marketing, you should go do this. Why? Because it'd be really cool. No, it wouldn't. Or it's too hard or it's not in our right target market or whatever. I think in any department that I've seen, marketing is the one that has to defend its turf the most. Sales, nobody wants to be a salesperson. Product, product is too technical. Programming, no thanks. Finance, I can't even balance my own checkbook. But marketing, I know a good I know a good commercial when I see it. Well, that doesn't make you a marketer. That just makes you a consumer.
Yeah. You know, so, I, I will say I, I um, one time had a quarterly meeting for, for my company and half the people in the room either had an undergraduate in accounting or mm-hmm. were a previous finance person in a past life. So we had that yeah. kind of question where, you know, the, the, the CFO brings up a thing and then everyone else is like asking him how he's doing revenue recognition. This is one of those conversations you don't even want to hear, but like, then they were in debating that till we're like, okay, does this even matter? What do we, we're, we're debating financial yeah. terms here, but like that doesn't happen very often for those, for those people. But, it seems to happen a lot in the marketing world. It does. And it's, and, and, and here's where I think the big uh, reason is, is everybody has, everybody in your company has a specific view of who the customer is. Okay. For the product person, they have a product view of the customer or of the, or of the prospect, right. Or of the consumer. Your finance people do, your, your marketing people do, your technology, your sales. They all have this persona in their head of who the marketer is because they need that to complete their job. They need a figurehead of who they're working toward, right? But in marketing, what marketing's trying to do is pull all those together and find the right one and the right path. So you present a marketing plan and and if there's 12 people in the room, 12 people will have an opinion about that marketing plan that's not based upon a global view or on a view of a certain demo or target market or whatever. They'll have a view of who that customer is and their idea is right. And the problem with that is that there can only be one idea of the customer outward facing for any company and that has to be marketing that has to be the CMO that has to be the head of marketing whatever you want to call it but that person is responsible for the outward sign uh, and we'll get into this later there's a religious uh, phrase outward sign of an inward grace right okay. so outward sign of the grace of the company the idea of the company the equity of the company that can only be expressed one way and the marketing person has to be that person to do it now, before, before I ask why on that, I want to say I think the mic drop moment would just ha- occurred where you talked about everyone has their own shaded, tinted view of the customer, their own lens based on their department. And the marketing yeah. seems to be the one that we're like that weird telescope. We put all the lenses in front of it and you, all the filters, you see all the colors, and you're looking globally across everything. And so because of that overall view, so when you said it, 12 people in a room, yeah, what marketing's talking about impact each and every one of them at some point in time. Now, but why does marketing, why are they the ones that are showing the outward sign? Because they have because they're responsible for lead generation, they're responsible for sales, they're responsible for getting people to the door and keeping people in the house. Sales is going out and talking about selling. Right. Yeah. Sales is great to sell, but what are you selling? Well, you're selling a product. Well, how do you describe that product? Well, you got to go to marketing and to find out how to describe that product because marketing has to be the end all and be all on how we describe the company, how mm-hmm. we describe ourselves, how we, there can only be as a Highlander reference, right? There can be only one. Yes. You can't have 12 people deciding how to describe the company. That's why when I come into B2B companies, one of the first things I focus on is what are your unique selling points? Yes. Your USPs. And I, and I tell them, and, and 
every company has like starts with 12, right? And it's like, no, you can't have 12 USPs. Well, these are the things that we do different. No, that's different. That's not unique. You ha and we go through this long exercise. And so we get at the end of it and I'm like, great, we've got three USPs. They're solid. Nobody else is doing it. This is how we distinguish ourselves in the industry. And then people go, okay, now what do we do with it? I said, you need to make every salesperson, every outward person uh, in the company memorize it. Yes. Because when they ask about who is uh, XYZ, they need to say those three things because that's how we describe ourselves. Right. Advertising is going to be talking about those things over and over again. You, but you need marketing to pull that together and to communicate this. It's not back that out to all the different groups, back right? Out to yeah. All the different groups yeah. and to the external company or the customers. Yeah. Uh, companies can only sing one song. And if you sing different songs, then people are like, well, do I like country or rap, or reggae? Well, isn't that the problem? Don't companies, many companies, most companies sing multiple songs. The sales sings their tune. Then God forbid customer service or the, the product sings a different tune that sales was singing. Mm -hmm. Then that you have disconnects and unhappy customer experience. Yeah. You have a confused brand message. You have a confused brand equity. And that can be death for a company. Right. Right, or they don't let marketing unite all of them, all the songs into an yes. orchestra piece. And so it, you know, marketing, you have your own thing. Sing whatever you want, but stay out of my song. And then no one sounds the same. And you have like, it's not really the same company, but it is. It doesn't make any sense. It's weak. It makes the, the yep. song weak, I think, overall. And the research on the USPs puts your best thing forward, mm. right? This is what we're known for. This is it. This is what's best. Instead of a salesperson thinking, this is really cool. This heat map thing is amazing. We're going to push that every time I talk to somebody. Well, what if I go back and I say, everybody in the world has a heat map, so it really doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Right. What really makes a difference are these three things that we know no one else can beat us at. That's the important part. Uh, that can be hard, though. I've tried doing those, um, even for my own company, and – you're like, ah, is that really, you know, it, you're right. Yes. I mean, I might start with 12 or I might start with zero and be like, oh, what is unique? And I mean, any tips for how companies can create these? Yeah. When you have 12, the way to get to three, I usually tell companies you have to have at least three and three is fine. Yeah. And then everybody comes back and goes, why three? And I said, because uh, people remember in threes. Yeah. Uh, if you live into an infomercial, you hear the, the phone number three times, right? It, it, huh. It's easy to remember. Um, how many times? Three times in a in a thirty second commercial or a five fifteen second commercial, you hear the 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 phone number repeated three times in a row. Got it. Wait, wait, one more time. How many times do you hear it? Ah, you're funny. Ah. So, <laughs> um, so to get from a zillion of them down to three, I play. I do the BS test, and so I take the Confederate view. And I make them prove to me that that's truly unique. And I define unique as nobody else has it. Not we do it different. No one else has it. Not different. Yeah. And so the marketing person or the, the, the fractional or the consultant has to play the Confederate to push everything back to them and go prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. Well, they do this. And you have to really challenge them on everything. The last company I worked for, they had 15. And I walked in. It took us three months to get to three. Interesting. Because they all kept wanting to argue differentiation. And so we created two tabs, unique and different. 
different could be used once you've explained unique, but mm -hmm. unique had to be first. And so you get to that, to then to go from nothing to something, mm -hmm. if they have nothing and they can't come up with five ideas in an hour meeting, then you don't have a problem with your USPs. What you have a problem with is competitive analysis, product knowledge, all those things that says, who are you to the industry? That generally shows that people don't know their space as well as you think they do. Interesting. So then you work with them on, okay, we do a competitive analysis. We start going through and we start vetting this and we start la, 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 la. And some things aren't tied to product. I have one company that I work with and thought leadership is their USP, but they have, they have a gravitas to stand on. They have, hmm. um, they have a belly of work that actually is unique and it, and it stands above the rest. Interesting. Great. It can be a soft USP, but, uh, it also can speak to that they haven't designed the product outside of copying the competitor. Does this work for services and, and are there any changes that you would do for services? Same thing. Same thing. Okay. It's, it's harder. Actually, no, it's not the same thing. I'll take that back. It's harder for services because services are soft, right? Yeah. But in a USP mix, I never mention price or services unless I have an award on the services. Because everybody says they got great service. White yeah. glove, gold standard, world class, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Everybody says they have that. But unless you have an award to substantiate that, to say you're better than everybody else, then you can't use service as a USP. Price, I don't put it as USP because if you have to hang your head on price. Oh, God, right? You have bigger problems. problems. Yeah. But I've had clients before that, honest to God said they had better service. And it's like, you may, but nobody independent has told you that. Right. And that's another thing with USPs. If you have an independent entity telling you something, then you can use that to substantiate your claim. What's better for me to say that I'm one of the top marketers in the industry, or for me to say, uh, I, you know, a really good rep, uh, organization a few years ago noted me in the top, one of the top 40 or top 30, uh, digital strategists in the industry. The yeah. latter has a lot of credibility. The yeah, I even had I even mentioned it. That caught our attention yeah. too. Yeah. And it's one of those things. It's 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 boasting versus it can be verified, right? Yeah. So that's where services gets a little fuzzy. I usually don't use them unless I have a I have one client that does have an award, has had an award for two years. That's one of our USPs. Got it. Got it. For some of those soft, mushy things, you're only bringing it up if there's some thing you can point at that says that this is true. Because otherwise, it's just hearsay, right? It's like yes, you're just saying it, which just people expect from marketing, and that will just immediately make that message soft and not yes. strong. And especially in the initial stages of any relationship, B2B or B2C, you need trust. Yeah. Anything that dissuades from that trust takes a lot longer to get back. And so if you make a worthless claim up front, well then people are gonna trust your product if they can't trust that you're not BSing them. Have, what do you think about ease of use? Cause that seems ease like of one use. of those same ones where everyone says their SaaS offering is easy to use. Yep, can you prove it? Yeah. I would say, I would say the same thing with service 
is, is can you prove it? Again, via an external entity, right? So does Forrester say it? Does Gartner say it? Does right. G2 Crowd say it? Do right. your reviews say it? Is, you know, uh, if you think in the case of Trustpilot or G2 Crowd, one of those sites, right? Can you point to a stat on your page that says ease of use, five out of five? Mm -hmm. Then you can use it. You have to attribute it back to that, but you can use it if somebody independently said that. Right. The unique part of this is to get to what have other people said or what is um, so provable that it, that it doesn't need to be accredited, right? Right. But this is a whole – that's why USB development takes three, four months because yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a debate within a debate within a debate full of trying to disprove things or prove things. And, and yeah, some of it's marketing spin to come in and say, you know, you have X, Y, Z. But it starts with what can we hang our hat on? Yeah, and I, th and I think this is the kind of ne necessary exercise companies need to go through. It's great that they can bring someone like you in where you're like, look, guys, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I'm going home to my family, so let's, right. let's debate this thing. No sacred cows here. Let's figure this thing out. And that's, that's the nice thing about my gig is that I get to come in as the third party. I get to yeah. come in as the guy that doesn't have – that isn't part of – I'm part of the team because fractional – uh, the fractional CMO role is different than a consultant. Mm. Fractional CMO role actually goes through training. I go through the same training that a new employee does. Oh, really? I have an email address. I attend the company meetings. I do, you know, and I do some of that stuff and I don't charge. Right. And so you do all those things because you have a greater investment. And because the job of a fractional CMO is to act like a CMO, which means that he has to get in touch with the employees and their thoughts and comments. There's a lot of extraneous stuff that has to be done. And so that's what differentiates from just a consultant who's coming in to do a task and move on. Mm -hmm. A task or a little strategic project and a little yes. bit of, you know, but you're, you're in it with them. Yes. You're just not full-time. Just not full-time. Yeah. So that, that independence sense. is fun. Cause I can yeah, come I can in and that. say, you know, no, you're full of crap. That doesn't work. Or, and I'm respectful, but in essence, I'm saying that doesn't work and here's why. And I help companies get to the fast track, right? Not mm -hmm. make the mistakes that they've made in other companies throughout the career or the time of this industry. Yeah. I could see that being an advantage. Maybe helps move marketing forward with this sort of sneak attack because it's a fractional CMO and you get things mm -hmm. done. Um, and now you're not worried about, oh, I'm going to be out of here in you know, a year and a half or something. You have Right. Yeah. What about technology? How, you know, buying tech, we all buy tech all the time. How can marketing leverage technology, but without losing their soul? Um, so Rusty Warner uh, is uh, a great analyst over at Forrester, along with Shara Van Brosker and, and a bunch. I know a lot of the analysts over there and they're all phenomenal. Um, but Rusty and I got into a discussion once about technology and how do marketers think about technology. And there's two kind of thoughts out there. The one thought is uh, that I want to put my marketing stack with one company and it does everything, mm -hmm. right? Because in theory, it should all be frictionless. It should all be connected. It should all be great. And that's, in theory, that's great. 
in practicality, that doesn't necessarily happen. Uh, okay. But in theory, it's great. The other side of this, and I think Rusty has, has written about it a bunch, and, and I've written about it a bunch, um, is that my belief is that you should have a CRM that is fully servicing your needs, and the marketing stack is built with a best-in-class um, uh, uh, surrounding it, right? So the yeah. best-in-class email, social listening, mm -hmm. uh, direct mail, all these things. And what you focus on is integration and capabilities. Yeah. Look at how can everybody talk to each other or talk to the CRM at the same time so that we can make those fluid and frictionless decisions. And so when you do that, then what you do is you enable the data to tell you where to go. And so marketers not losing their soul is about truly being in touch with the data, with what the consumer or the prospect is saying, and be able to uh, be authentic in that mm -hmm. response, right? Marketing is not sales. Yes, we sell things in marketing, but marketing is not sales. Marketing right. is the empathetic. Right. It, is the, it, it is the brand equity, it is the brand voice. It is the uh, mission, vision, and beliefs of the company. And they need to keep that in mind and not get so mired in. And I have talked about this for the last 10 years of my career, um, thinking about the strategy first and the tactics second. You come up you with an idea. You do that or don't do that? Do that. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> do the marketing. Do the strategy first. I have, I have, uh, if you get 10 marketers in a room and you toss out an idea, sit back and listen, and what you will instantly have is a tactical discussion about how to get that done. It's true. But what I have encouraged and written about and talked about for years is stop, take a step back, and answer the why, not the how. Mm -hmm. Tell me why we should do this. Why should the customer or prospect have a reason to believe? Why should they care? Do your own BS stress test on the idea. Right. But don't talk about tactics until you've decided that that's the right strategy. Yeah, I, I've observed this too. And it, sometimes it feels like piranhas going after. And the other thing it is it, it's, the, it's the fresh kill too, conference or and you name it. Um, if you make an email campaign or if you make a conference title sound like it's strategy, no one comes. But if you make it sound like here's the nine tricky tactics you've never thought of that mm -hmm. you should try tomorrow, Regar irregardless, if that's even a word, it's regardless of uh, if, if, if it fits your strategy or not. If you have a strategy, you try these nine things tomorrow. That right. gets people to attend. Drives yeah. me a little crazy. Yeah, I just I, I see too many people rushing toward the tactics. Yeah. The how to get it done. No one cares about how to get it done if you haven't figured out why. Why, why, why? And right. I walk into a lot of companies and that's the first question I ask. Why are you doing this? Right. Well, I don't know, it's a good idea. Well, where's the strategy brief? Where's the strategy documents? Where's the, the guts to this, right? Why should I care? Right. And and that's how I think marketers don't lose their soul is that the more that you start thinking about the strategy of why I should be doing something, you keep your eye on the customer. You okay. keep your eye on the data that backs up your supposition or your hypothesis or your crazy idea, right? Okay. Yep. And if you do that, then you you stay a marketer because you stay true to what marketing should be doing, mm -hmm. which is connection with the end user. 
mm. whether that's a consumer or a prospect. Yeah. Marketing's whole goal is to have a relationship, is to connect, is to grow. And, and yes, there are buyer types that are just like, I just want your widget and I don't care. And go it's in, fine. Yeah. But if I'm a, if I'm a marketer, I recognize those type of people and I don't bug them. Right. But if I'm not a marketer, then I'm blast them every day with six emails telling them to buy crap. Yeah. Although Crazy. my inbox has been great lately. Not that has COVID it? is a great thing. Uh, it's a horrible thing, but man, my inbox has liquidated. I, I, this is like 10 years ago, kind of levels. Wait, wait, I'm not getting, not getting, not emails? getting emails, not getting emails from, from, from retailers. Oh, oh okay. I I'm getting a double the amount on the B2B brand. Oh, on the B2B brand, they're going crazy because B2B is taking a huge, huge hit. Yeah. And that feels like they're going insane um, yes. on that one. Yeah. They are. Well, on that note, what's the future look like? Uh, I think a lot of us are looking at the, like, the foot in front of us. Um, yeah. What kind of things can we see around the corner that we should be looking for? Positive about maybe some good things that are happening or some things just to watch out for as we think about the next couple of months or even like what does the future hold for marketing? Yeah, yeah. I've done a lot of writing about this. So okay. my perspective is 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 uh, is kind of looking through the hourglass and looking through kind of a lens of where we are. So we're still in this confused state. Yeah. Um do I market? Do I not market? How do I talk? How do I talk to somebody in New York versus somebody in Dallas versus right. somebody in Omaha? Without being right? sensitive a, or without being yeah. sensitive or burning down the house or whatever right. it is, you know. And so there is that confusion that's going on. And I think all of marketing has, has, has hopefully figured out that the marketing plan they drew up at the first of the year, it needs to be in the trash. Yeah. Because for the next year and a half, it is, it is uh, during the height of the pandemic when everything was going on, I was encouraging companies to have a weekly marketing plan. And what we did this week was decided you know, at the very end of last week. And so you did your thing and you did it again because so things are so fluid. Now you're maybe into a month or two weeks. Right. And, and marketers got to think about these short-term, um, these short-term plans because things are so fluid. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I think that's going to, I think that's going to exist for a while. I think we're going to get a small break maybe in uh, one week in August uh, will be a, a break, but here's from a, a 30,000 foot view. Here's what you've got. You've got a lot of chaos and, and confusion and companies mm -hmm. that haven't gotten in touch with their authenticity. Then you've got the summer, right? Where people try and figure out if people are going back to school uh, or if everybody's working from home forever or whatever. And then you've got what many of the scientists are saying is the fall. And so then you have the election, you have Christmas, Thanksgiving, family, winter, all that stuff. Then you have the new year. Then you have you. And, and if the, the pandemic comes back in the fall greater, I barely, you know, some companies are like, I barely survived this one. What the heck am I going to do right. in six months? Well, you know, that's what makes this all chaotic. And, and the mm. goal is for the leadership to come in and approach it in a, in a, um, a very concerted, fashion to handle what they can handle and plan for what they can plan. But there's too many unknowns. 
I think for the, I think for the next year, marketing is confused. Marketing mm -hmm. is, um, f um, I hate saying fluid over and over again, but it is, it's just, mm -hmm. uh, we don't know what's, what's going to happen and we can plan it. We got to have contingencies, but we don't know. And so, but I think on the far side of it, if I think a year from now, right? Year and a half from now. Yeah. What do we get to? I think we get to, hopefully, this is my hope, is that we as marketers have learned how to, number one, all do crisis marketing, crisis yeah. management. Um, but two, I hope we've learned to be more creative and to connect better. Mm. Um, hopefully we learn some empathy. Hopefully we just start, stopped, you know, we, we hopefully stop just selling stuff and we actually put more thought into our communications. Right. And hopefully it takes people back a step and maybe that's the strategy layer. Maybe that's something else. I don't know, but I hope that people have done that. I think what you're going to see on the far side of this too is technology has flexed in 12 zillion different ways. Yeah. And I think that you're going to see a lot of companies, um, have to adjust their product offering, but also offer new stuff that wasn't, didn't need to be available six months ago, but now is available. So mm -hmm. um, it's a very uh, different time we're living in. And if marketers are out there, they just need to keep their, keep their head level. Right. Yeah. And, and take it as it comes. And, and, um, it's very easy right now to get overwhelmed Yep. Um, and think about too many things. And right now what you have to do is think about this and then move on to this and then move on to this. Got it. Now that, so one thing at a time here, like one thing at a time yeah. I can know it, you know, and use technology, right? There's a lot of technology out there that can help with this kind of stuff. And I would so, put in front of the other, you know, just like, keep keep walking you keep, yeah. keep doing it keep doing it keep executing and you're gonna screw up oh marketers are gonna make mistakes they are they just yeah. are and you got to be comfortable with it totally and you got to learn from it and you got to apologize for it you got to move on totally had that happen to me today i was like you know what happens cool yeah but we had a lot of positive came out of it so cool we'll apologize to your point apologize move on all good. yep I had one boss, I had one boss in, in, in recent memory, um, which has been my belief for a long time, but it was nice to have a C-level person say this was, listen, you're going to screw up and that's okay. Come tell me about it. And then you got to tell me what you learned from it while you're telling me about it. Yeah. And as long as you don't do it like three times, then we're good. Yeah. But don't, you know, he says, I expect you to make mistakes. And I said, good. Cause I'm going to make them. He says, great. <laughs> Fine. They're going to happen. Yeah. But that's how you learn. You got to test things out. You do. And, and I hope that marketers are using segments of their populations, their lists mm -hmm. to try things, to, um, to figure out the right way to go, to, yeah. to, to really make sure their message resonates and using technology to differentiate that message between New York, Dallas, and Des Moines. Right. You know, cause it is three very different, uh, levels of socioeconomic behavior mm -hmm. and you can be deaf in one and, and overly empathetic in another. So if you use technology to your advantage, you can avoid that.
Yeah, a lot of moving parts in all this. Mm-hmm. Um, sound wisdom, really. I, I, it's comforting actually hearing you talk about it because it, it's like, ah, we're going to get through this. There's these things that we got to figure out, these unknowns, but we'll yep. get through it and we make mistakes as we've learned from it. And that's good. We just keep moving on and be, to your point, you be authentic and you really just try to connect and have empathy with people. Then yeah, you can't really go wrong there, you know? Nope. That's the, marketers are having to get in touch with empathy. Yeah. Yeah. To get in touch with emotion. It's, it's, um, and if you don't, on this, you're doomed. You are doomed. And, and it's hard, but it's hard for marketers in some case to break out of this for year forever. Marketers have always been told that you're not the customer. Mm. The problem is that now they are in right. some respects, they're going through a quarantine. They're going through a social lockdown. They're going through an opening up. They're going through blah, 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 blah. Right. So now we have to tap into that. As a marketer, you got to tap into that experience. You have to let that power your strategy, let that power your direction, let that power that inner voice that all marketers have that when something comes up and they go, ooh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Mm. You have to use that own experience to, to add into that filter. Yes. I tell marketers all the time, the minute you take a breath in at an idea, it's a wrong idea. Stop. Take a look at it a little deeper because most of us know a bad idea when we hear it. Like, hey, I don't know about that one. Mm, not sure on that one. Yeah. Well, who are you? How did, how did you get all this, this experience? And I mean, take us back in time, like little Ryan days. Did you always know you're going to be a marketing leader and a no. fractional sage brought into all sorts of crazy companies and helping them sort through things? Like, no. I grew up on a farm north of Des Moines, Iowa. No kidding. I was wondering where the Des Moines came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we had hogs, cattle, corn. No uh, kidding. 13, 13 acres, 15 acres, somewhere in there. Um, grew up a farm kid until I was 17. Then we moved to Des Moines. Um, and uh, no, originally, uh, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a poli- uh, fireman because okay. they didn't have to do math. And I hated math as a child. Right. Um, college after I graduated high school, I did a, a year at a community college because I wanted to be a computer programmer. And so I was trying to learn uh, Pascal and COBOL. Right. And uh, then I determined that that was a mistake. Um, what about that was a mistake? I just, I didn't, at that age, I didn't have the chops for it. Yeah. I couldn't see beyond the, the beyond the code. Right. Yeah. Um, which makes sense in a little, in a little bit. But then after that, I went, uh, I went to a Catholic seminary to study to be a priest. No kidding. Catholic priest. Yeah. How long were you there? I was, uh, four years. I spent four years of an eight year program. No kidding. Yeah. Awesome. I'll give you a minute. Cause usually it takes people a minute. They're like, really? That's cool. Then well, I was actually kind of picturing you like, wow, you're really nice to talk to. Like me like, Oh, Maybe this this is why you're just a really caring person, and and I can see how, you know, I I I've even pondered being like a like a minister or something like that, where you just want to share hope and love yeah. with people, you know. But but I I do like I do like the misses a little too much, you know. I like the misses too. Um, people have, uh, and and the one thing that I hear a lot is people have compared my public speaking to a, a mass or a service or a sermon. Interesting. Like um, a homily. Yes. 
and it very much is. I approach public speaking very much the same way that I would approach a homily. Did they have speaker um, training when you're doing that? No. I learned because after I left the seminary, I was a DJ for six years. There you go. Um, it's like barn door yeah. swung the other way. Yeah. So I went from, yeah, I went from mass every day to being at the bar every night. Um, and that's where I got my group. That's where I got, uh, I was always a good speaker, but I really uh, got out, got into it when I was in the bar. Because I'd have four years is a long time, though. That's a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you Best grow education. up kind of feeling like a bit of a calling in that regard? or No, I didn't really think about it until I was, you know, after high school. And it, the way I describe it to people is, um, have you ever had that perfect job? You were like, this is where I need to be. This is perfect. This is absolutely the right place. Sure. Right? Being called to be a priest was just like that. Yeah. It just was like, that just makes sense. That's where I'm supposed to go. Yeah. Totally. Let's go there. Totally. And so the conversations I had to get into the seminary, I mean, there's a lot of them. I bet. Um, you know, it all just made sense and it all just clicked. And then my senior year of college, my, my fourth year of seminary, it went the other way. And it just was like, I don't know that I want to be a priest anymore. I want to be a lay person. And it was like, I was very comfortable with it. My parents were comfortable with it and everybody was supportive of it. And it just was like, that is the right decision for me to make. Yeah. And, and that's how, you know, I've carried that feeling through to inform a lot of my career choices. It's just like, is this the right feeling? Is this the right choice? Yeah. And, and it's been the, the right choice. I wouldn't have changed. I would go back and relive seminary over and over again because it was great. It was the best education I could have gotten. No kidding. And so it was like an eight-year program. So, you, oh, for like, you got to do undergrad, then graduate. Undergrad and, and then a graduate. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. You, you know, you went with your gut, you, you, with the feeling. You were listening mm -hmm. to yourself. And that, I think a lot of people could benefit from hearing that because it, and, and it's okay if it changes its mind, you know? Mm -hmm. you, but you go with it. And it how, how tough would that have been if you hadn't continued listening? I think sometimes we, we talk about listening at the beginning, but then we have to continue listening. And if we need to change something, change something. Yeah. yeah and we wow. don't, we don't listen to ourselves. We don't, that's that inner voice that when you hear an idea and you go, Ooh, I don't know, that's listening to yourself. Yeah. Right. And, 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 um, I mentor uh, a few people every once in a while. And that's what I encourage them to do is listen to that interior voice. Listen to yeah. that, that peace or that, or that disruption. And that's a great indicator of whether or not you're on the right track or the wrong track. Right. You know, in different uh, trainings in the military and sniper school, they actually tell you to explicitly listen to it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're like, nope. <laughs> if it says jump, you jump. And like, yeah, yeah. Just go for it um, because there's something to that. Now that wow, okay. So, so you're like, you got out of that and, and um, was it any challenge of like, I'm now I'm sort of like reframing who I am and then. There was. There was yeah. a lot of that. There was a lot of who am I, why am I here. Yeah kind of I a bet. thing and and did the uh, nightclub thing for a while which i really enjoyed a lot of fun didn't make any money but had a great time right no money whatsoever but you were like the king you're just i had yeah i had free booze that was the benefit i had free booze and but um you know we packed eight nine hundred people in the club every night wow and it was a rush it was better than than any drug you can name you got Being, it right because like they're they're all moving to what you're doing yeah yeah and wow. uh so then i got tired of that because i didn't see a future in it I, True. 
was a startup in, in 1998 uh, that I joined in Omaha, Nebraska. Okay. Um, that was uh, doing gift certificates online. Wow. And I came in and I did affiliate marketing and I did email. Okay. Because the CEO was, he, uh, my first two interviews with the CEO were talking about the stories from the nightclub. Because <laughs> we would have national acts that would come in and he'd be like, oh, have you met Clint Black? And oh, have you met Merle Haggard? And all this stuff. And I'd tell him all these stories and stuff. And he put me in charge of those two things because it was like, nobody's paying attention to him and I don't know what to do with him, but you seem like you've figured out. And so I did wow. and had a great time doing it. Yeah. So what a cool, what a cool change. You get the, and you know, I think a lot of us um, are doing that anyways, just trying different jobs. And then one job's like, you definitely don't fit. You're fired. One job, you just, you go move on. So everyone's kind of experimenting in this case though, you have to like, it maybe has more weight to it. Like, Oh, I'm really, you know, but at the same time you're exploring and then you explore something else, a DJ. And then eventually you're trying the different jobs and you're like, actually this marketing thing is something yeah. to do it. Affiliate marketing can be really fun. Cause you, there's people on the other end of the line and you're trying to empower them. You want to make them money. They want to, you know, mm -hmm. it's really cool. I had, I had fun in the affiliate space. So I founded along with two other people, affiliate summit. Oh, you uh, founded that. Yeah. I was, I was <laughs> one of the, th one of the three. I'm like the young uh, Jedi that comes along after going like, that was like a staple. Hasn't that always been around? That's fun. Nope. Wow. Nope. Um, we, we thought up that one on a, what on a cruise ship. Um, nice. But, uh, and I got, you know what? I, I, we did affiliate summit um, and I was running affiliate programs and I had a really good name in that space. And then I kind of just saw the future, <clears throat> future of it. And I saw the future of email and I saw a greater trajectory with what email could do. Yeah. And I really kind of got out of affiliate and, and, uh, and went the other way and, and started going with email. And I've worked for some amazing companies in this space right. and some phenomenal uh, clients on the strategy side. Um, uh, companies that I just, you know, was in awe of showing up. I mean, I got to go, this is my, uh, this is when I worked for responses. I got to be in charge of the Lego account. Oh, there you go. Now growing up, I was a Lego. I was, I Me was, too. I had everything right. And I got to go to Lego headquarters and I was in heaven. I'm walking through the building and I'm like, where is that? Is that Oslo or is that sweet? No, no, no. It, domestically. Oh, I think okay. they're, they're on the East coast. Okay. Gotcha. Um, but uh, got to go to there and I've been to HP's global headquarters and, wow. and uh, their UK headquarters and, and work with Citibank and U S bank and, and all these phenomenal companies over the years, just helping them with their strategy and stuff. Um, it's been, God, it's just been fun. And just yeah. and every time I turn around, I was, you know, I'd get on stage, people would ask me to come speak or I'd apply mm -hmm. and get on stage. And it just, it's the same kind of adrenaline rush that I get from being on the DJ stage right. is being on stage somewhere. And, and somebody asked me the other day, how can you, you know, what's the largest crowd you've presented to? And I said, I think it's about 450, 400, 450. And she said, didn't that terrify you? I said, no, the bigger, the better. Mm -hmm. so the more people you have, the better, I mean, the more energetic I am. Yeah. Um, and I just love it. I just, you know, what, what's great about this industry is that it's a family. Yeah. Um, 
it's very close knit. I mean, um, it's one of the only industries I know where um, I am really good friends with companies that were my competitor at some point uh, or were complimentary to me. I mean, mm -hmm. we would, you know, we would go to a conference and we would be at the booth all day and we would be trying to get the business. And then as soon as the conference was done for the day, we'd all be at the same bar having a drink, talking about home and life, family, and all kinds of other geeky stuff. Wow. But we're all friends. And, and I find this industry just amazing um, in its connections to other people. Yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 fun. It, it's like an amazing network where people know people who are connected and yeah. Oh yeah. It's um, the number of times I have worked with somebody and then two jobs later, I'm either working for them or they're working for me. Mm-hmm or they know the CEO of the company I'm trying to get a hold of, you know, trying to get a job with. Right. Amazing uh, togetherness. I had an interview for one of my clients and I did an interview, interviewed a candidate that's, that's trying to get a job there. And I got on the phone and I said, you get, you come very well recommended. And it took her back. She was like, what are you talking about? I says, Oh no, I've checked you out. I've talked to a number of people that know you and they all have very, very good things to say. So this is going to be a very short interview. And she was like, I'm like, listen, that's how this industry works. Totally. That's how this, this is, you know, you got to have a good reputation. You got to have, you know, people know people everywhere. It's so true. I mean, I just pulled it up. It looks like we're, you know, we had met years ago with the, the email and, um, you know, the shopping cart and all that yep. kind of thing. And then here it is like years later, we have 32 mutual connections. Right. You know, like how does that even happen? Yeah. Exactly what you're talking about. And pick another business that does that. I mean, or in an industry. True. I mean, it's there probably are some, but I think um, uh, John Whitfield, who runs Media Post Insider Summit um, conference, um, he once made a remark to to me. Um, I said, "How was the mobile?" Because they do all these conferences, they'll line them up and do three in a row or something like that. Yeah. And I said, "How was the XX Vertical Conference?" And he says, yeah. "Oh man." He says they all are petty and they all pick on each other and they're all this and that. He says, but you guys, I love your guys' conference because you'll get on stage and debate with each other and you'll compete for business. But then later that night, you're buying him a drink and she's buying you a drink and you guys are having a great time and you're all best friends. And I'm like, yep. That's the way it is. Right. right. I, I enjoy marketing conferences for sure for the people. Um, we all kind of share that overall picture. A lot of us have... Yep. The, a love of a little bit of math and a little bit of creative. Uh, otherwise we'd yeah. be accountants or, or, or artists, but we're somewhere in between yeah. um, the land of misfit toys. So yeah, it, it can be just really a blast to just hang out with fellow marketers. Though I will say sales does party harder, harder typically. Oh, they do. Yeah. But they don't have to be as, they don't. Yeah. Marketers always have too the hard. back. Sometimes their, too hard. Yes. So marketing can be right sweet spot. Right. right. It's because yeah. marketers in the back of their head have this brand equity and all this stuff that's like the face of the company and they don't want to be trashed. Although I have no marketers that are, that would put salespeople to shame. Right. Um, but uh, you know, there, there were a few years where conferences were scheduled in such a way. And I can remember this one year um, I saw, I saw like five or six people more than I saw my girlfriend at the time. No, really? 
because we would come home, we would do a wrap, we would do an overnight and we would go back to the next conference. And there was like four weeks in a row this one year and it wow. was killing us all. We would leave one conference and say, I'll see you in a couple days. And it, you know, and it was just insane. But some of these people you see more than, than your best friend at sometimes, but it's, you know, uh, I, I love it. I absolutely love this industry. It is a crazy industry. Um, and we're so connected. Hypothetical for you. Yes. Um, there may or may not be a time machine in Nashville, New Hampshire. And uh, you can't use it now, COVID and all, but you okay. get a chance to actually come visit and use the time machine. Go back in time and talk to yourself. And typically the range is right around the beginning of your marketing career when you get out of school, or this might even be before, let's say even before the seminary, right? If you can mm -hmm. go back and talk to yourself, knowing everything you know, would you tell yourself, what kind of advice would you say? Uh, I would say don't date this person or this person. <laughs> Um, no, would there be I a would, don't date a certain person? Would there be a, there be a, there would be morning, a don't bro. date. There would, there would be a don't date a couple people. <laughs> nice. Um, Cause we no all one, have those. No, one, no one's used that yet. No, no one's done no? Split scores yet or like watch out for, you know, Sherry or someone. Oh yeah. No, I tell them all the stocks to buy at the, at, <laughs> you know, when I went, but the real advice I would give is, and this took me a little bit, I'm Irish and I've got an Irish temper, which means that I will, I will, you can tick me off for a long time, but at some point you're going to do something and I'm just going to explode all over you. Got right. It. And so really? what I would, what I would tell myself is to always ask, not that I haven't, but there's been points in my career where I torched bridges oh, because I yeah. didn't care. Right. I didn't uh, take the 24 hour rule. My old mentor back when I first started in this business uh, gave me a great piece of advice. It says, if you're mad, angry, infuriated, do not reply re or respond for 24 hours. Right. He said at the end of 24 hours, you've calmed down. The emotion is left. You've, you've gotten back to who you are and you know how to reply without burning a bridge. And I said, I would go back and, you know, before college, probably that the, the, the gap year I had uh, at the community college. And I just say, use that 24 hour rule mm. and realize that, you're entering a world where people are very connected and your reputation is going to mean a lot. And I haven't done it too much, but earlier when I was younger, I did it too many times. You know, it, 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 it's a perfect tie in, right? Cause we were just talking about how connected we are. And um, I yes. think sometimes we get those emails. It feels like the hot potatoes thrown at us and now it's going to burn in our soul until we throw it back at someone else. But maybe we figure out how to just lay it down somewhere and just not, do the quick reply because yeah. things can escalate on email. You can't winky face enough to get no message across that you're not mad or yeah. you are mad. And yeah. And the other thing is email is an impersonal medium when you're talking one-to-one. -one. Yeah. I know people and I have learned this over time. There are people that are horrible email people, <laughs> not like email marketers, they are horrible at communicating their thoughts and ideas via email. Yeah. And if you're able to recognize that, then you take the, the insult that is clearly in the subtext of whatever he or she is writing and you realize they're just a bad, they're just a bad emailer. Let me take it at what they mean, not what they say. 
Yeah. And I've made a lot of those mistakes over the years is that I would get really bent out of shape because some guy would or a gal would send me an email and I'd be like, what the F are you thinking? Yeah. And, and, it, and, and it would escalate to a point where the guy was or a girl was like, I didn't mean it that way. And it's like, well, it came off that way. You need to realize that some people stink at it. Yeah, yeah, and not just sending, but receiving too. Receiving, sending, the whole digital community. You could I've explain learned. it perfectly. They don't yes. get it, and they think you're right. a jerk now. And you're like, "But how yes. did you misinterpret that yep. at all?" Maybe it was just me sending a bad email. But like, either way, it's like to your point. Yep. Hold off. Get on the phone. And even but amazing, you hop on the phone with someone before you do that, or even afterward. And it's like, wow, it's cleared up in five minutes. Sometimes, yes, you know. And that was another piece of advice this mentor gave me is. Number one, the, the, the whole 24-hour rule, but he said, yeah. at a certain point, pick up the, the phone. Yeah. He says, you have to look at, if you've got this chain of emails, you've exceeded email. You need to get on a call and, or a meeting or something and hash this out because it has taken too much time. I gave that advice to one of my clients and employees the other day. He says, if the person is not a great email person, then pick up the phone and encourage them to talk to you about it instead of trying to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. But you as an individual have to recognize a bad email or a bad communicator and you have to, cause they're not going to change. Right. You've got to do the thing that heads off that bad interaction. Right. It's your responsibility. If you, if you are aware enough to notice it, you got to wield that power. Sometimes I wish I was the one where I was receiving the benefit of that. But if, <laughs> If, if you've been granted the power and responsibility, yes. then you need to use that and not further the flames of the argument. Yeah. So that's what I would tell myself a long time ago. That's awesome. That's awesome. And then watch out for that gal. <laughs> watch out for a couple. There were a couple doozies. A couple doozies. A couple doozies that maybe you should rethink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I could see as a DJ, I wouldn't blame you, you know. That was the cause of some of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. Baby, but, I'm a DJ. Well, well, this is my job. What can I do? I'm a par- I was made the party. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you would like to hear a song? Oh, what are you doing on Tuesday? You know, that kind of stuff. Oh, look at you. You were doing lead gen, and you didn't even realize it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Loved yeah. it. And now, now it's what? Wine and golf and cooking and... Wine and golf and cooking. Yeah, that's my... That's my bag is uh, I try to play a lot of golf and I collect a lot of wine and I'm the chef in the house. So I do all the cooking. What's the thing on collecting wine? Like, do you need to know something? Is this like the stock market? Do you actually just love it and you can collect it or how does that work? Uh, I am at probably the beginner stage and and at my level it's weird to think that i'm a beginner i've got 300 280 bottles in the house yeah now if that's beginner <laughs> yeah but i just like wine yeah okay i like and there are i like there's some vineyards that i like to collect and when i find a good wine i buy enough for me to enjoy it over and over again we're having you know we had uh you know it sounds precocious but i had we had pizza homemade pizzas a week ago oh yeah i reached into the yeah and I, I mean i've been eating a lot of homemade pizzas lately way better than all the fake stuff they throw in the you know right and i found this cauliflower crust Ooh. phenomenal really good anyway i reached into the fridge and i pulled out a 200 dollars bottle of wine and i'm like i just want a really good wine it's not about the 200 dollars, but it was just like i really just enjoy really good wine 
That's got to – now, was it – Oh, it's phenomenal. Can, can you, like, really – so I think one time um, we are doing some event, and we hadn't met the minimum. This The group I was with, yeah. they hadn't met the minimum. So I was like, bring out the wine list. They're yeah. going to charge us anyways. That's fun. It's, I think the best they had might have been a $100 bottle or an $80 bottle. I was like, let's do that. that let's do a cab. Let's do that $80, $100 cab but when i got it home it, it i don't know i here's the difference yeah tell me and i'll give you this this is the secret insider because i also besides being a dj i opened i also early in my career opened a, a restaurant oh uh, wow i worked for a company i was the marketing guy and i helped open this restaurant um the when you go into a restaurant look at the um the by the glass cost yeah and then look at what they charge that same bottle by the bottle. Okay. Yep. Most restaurants, the glass cost is what they paid for that bottle of wine. Wow. Because their break even is open it and serve one glass. And so anything, so a typical wine, uh, a wine bottle is four glasses. Yeah. So their margin is 75%. When wow. you go buy wine at a restaurant, it's maybe not the same price as you would get it direct from the winery or whatever. And so, yeah, it's like times four or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's really expensive. Yeah. So you can kind of gauge, okay, if the per glass cost is 12 bucks and the bottle cost is 36. Okay. Then if a bottle on the full wine list is 36, it's actually a $12 bottle of wine. Yeah. So you do kind of the reverse math, but um, I always encourage people when they go to the, uh, go to a, a, a restaurant to see if they have uh, a corkage fee and just pay, bring in your own wine and pay a fee to drink it. Oh. Um, so corkage fees can be, depending on where you are in the country, can be anywhere from 10 bucks to 50 bucks. Um, but then I can drink whatever the heck I want as long no, as they don't carry it. I have noticed we've we drank a lot more during quarantine, a lot more oh, wine. And in the past, we might, you know, one of us will each have a glass of wine. They were like, oh, man, are we wasting this bottle? We don't waste any bottles in quarantine, that's for sure. Um, no. You know, but it's been cheaper. It, I, like, we realized, okay, I'll go to the liquor store once every week or two weeks and, you know, pick up some, some bottles and whatnot. And then um, those last for a, a bit. And then it, but it was, you know, less than the cost of going to dinner one place. So it just – yeah. It's interesting that you, you say so that two hundred bottle dollar bottle was that two hundred what you'd pay in a restaurant or that's two hundred outside of a restaurant so a restaurant would be charging like eight hundred for that one. I don't know what they'd charge for it, but I paid eight hundred. I paid two hundred direct for the the winery. Direct from the winery, so they would have to really mark that puppy up and. It would be when they sell bottles. There's margin involved, so there is a little bit of grace for them. Okay. But you just have to kind of think about what's this bottle really cost. Um, so in that case, most of the stuff in restaurants is, I mean, if you're dividing by four or whatnot, it's not really, when you get to pure bottle, it's not dividing by four, but you can get kind uh, of an, it's a, it's more directional. Ish. Yeah. Yeah. Ish. But what you, you know, I've gone in and, and looked at bottles of wine and I'm like, I know you didn't pay that much for that. Right. Because mm. restaurants make a lot of their money on liquor food, uh, liquor, right. Sales, right. Beer and liquor sales. So, um, but it was worth it. I mean, that, that bottle of wine was gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And it went well with that pizza, that cauliflower pizza. Oh, it didn't care what the hell it went with. It <laughs> was, it what, was it a red or a white? 
It was a red. It was a Cabernet uh, from Napa. Wow. A 200. Alpha Omega. A 200 Cabernet Alpha Omega. Yep. Um, wow. And you're, you're a beginner and you've got a couple hundred. In your, in your, yes. Uh, I'm not as fancy. Don't know all the notes and how to describe it and all that stuff. I yeah. just know that I like good wine and I like what I, I know what I like. Would you ever do a sommelier class? If they offered it on weekends, sure, I'd do it. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> I, I have friends that are psalms. Yeah. It is amazingly right? tough. It's brutal. And then do you even like wine after that? I don't I don't know. I'd be worried about that. Like I would not hate wine after. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's uh, – I don't know that I would – I would like to have – and, and if, I'm trying to do this after we come out of whatever in the heck. In, yeah. is to take some wine classes and to start to learn the yeah. diseases stuff. I mean, I've been to, we used to live in San Francisco and we'd go to Napa twice a month and spend the day up there with wow. a lot of our wineries and, and uh, going up to Washington and all this kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And I've been over to France on a couple trips and, and uh, you know, it's been fun, but I'd love to learn just a little bit of depth to it. A little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Almost like going to a, psalm class and not being worried about if you're going to pass or fail the class which oh is kind i would of, do that in a heartbeat that's kind of like what college is all about anyways right you're like eh, right you know i'm gonna drink some here but yeah that i could see that being fun i, I think my wife would love to do some cooking classes and she's mm -hmm. gone to like the cia before and whatnot and um, love those i would be like hey i'll join you i'll be doing the psalm class <laughs> yeah yeah giggle, they, have giggle. A really good, they have a really good class oh yeah but then um you know i think i would be a little relaxed by the time we, we met up oh, after yeah. classes you know yeah yeah you'd have a glass ready for her. i would i would well hey this has been awesome where can people connect with you if they want to reach out learn more maybe yeah. work with you on some fractional services uh go to originemail.com. okay uh you can find me on twitter at ryan p phelan uh linkedin of course uh, if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, make sure to put a note on how we know each other or what you want. If I get, I generally will decline all just the, hey, I'd like to connect with you so we can join our networks. No, I don't care. Um, I'd also tell my younger self not to accept everybody that wants to be your friend on LinkedIn. I did that early on and, I, and now I got like thousands of people I don't know. Um, okay, so what's your advice on that then? What, what do don't, you don't. Don't. Uh, my, my rule is, Listen, LinkedIn is, is if I am going to hire somebody, I go to LinkedIn to see who they know, right? Like you did earlier. Yeah. But if I call five people and say, hey, do you know X, Y, Z? And they say, no, I'm just connected to them. Well, then the value of LinkedIn is diminished for me. True. And so what I, I put this on my page is unless we've met or, or connected in some way outside of LinkedIn, I will not accept your request. Because I just I cannot I cannot continue to spend the time to look at my LinkedIn to say no I don't know that person from Adam I just want to know that if I'm connected to him I know him yeah yeah and know how and know why yes yeah and that way your network is actually strong and you can is actually strong yeah yeah leverage it for sure so awesome well this has been fun thanks Casey this has been a great this has been a blast I've really enjoyed it thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I have too. And, you know, one of the things that you know, I always like to say at the end of this is to the people listening, if you've learned something, and I know you have, because I have two pages of notes over here, <laughs> then, uh, then share this with someone, be a thought yeah. leader, and don't just share it, 
put your thoughts, put your takeaways, your own personal takeaways, you know, um, of what you got from this kind of a conversation, throw it on LinkedIn, be a thought leader, tag us so mm-hmm. we can comment and promote you as well. Um, but yeah, be a thought leader and, and share this type of information with other people. And with that, Ryan, thank you again. This is just so much fun on a Friday. Thanks, Casey. Really appreciate it. And for those people listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We will catch you all next time.